good morning. I am I'm not Dr. Fowler. <laughs> uh, I'm sure those things that James prayed for Dr. Fowler, will, uh, the Lord will honor <laughs> for me as well. This morning, we're looking at one of those chapters of Scripture that are just of such incredible importance and of incredible, really, beauty to us that I would encourage you, particularly today, to just really dive into uh, to pay particular attention to the words that Scripture has for us today. It's a particularly needful subject. It's a particularly important passage that we need to hear. As a church, as individuals, we just need to hear about Pentecost. Turn with me, either in your bulletins or in your Bibles, to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 2, or sorry, verses 1 to 13. And please stand with me for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand and to apply your wonderful word. We pray that this spirit that we have just read about who came at Pentecost would, would fill us today, would enable us, illuminate our minds to be able to understand, not only in a mental sense, not only with a sense, but to understand from the heart the things that you are teaching us. Lord, we pray that we would be a transformed people today as we pray each Sunday, but that you would be moving among us by your Spirit, even as we study him. We pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. There are two particular impulses, two controlling impulses, that we should feel whenever we study or talk about the Holy Spirit. First, we should feel a great sense of excitement at the gift of the Spirit, at the coming of the Spirit. 
a sense of awe and amazement as was described in this passage, that the very person and power of God himself is at work in and through you and me. We ought to feel a sense of expectation, of wondering what is this spirit, this this very God among us who has all power, what is he going to do? We ought to feel a sense of the knowledge of the victory that is coming as it has been promised and as he has the power to accomplish. And on the other hand, and secondly, we need to feel a sense of our own fallibility. This is important today. Because of my sinfulness, our sinfulness, because of our tendency to put ourselves first, we're going to have a tendency to make the Spirit's work all about ourselves. We're going to have a tendency to warp Scripture, to warp what we read about the Spirit, and to make it more about me. To believe that he came to do what I want him to do. And those are two important things, the excitement and yet the knowledge that we are by nature idolatrous. We are by nature concerned with ourselves. But the Spirit... No less than God, the Father or the Son is sovereign, which means he is above all. He rules. He came with a purpose. He came with a mission, a goal to accomplish. In Acts 16, we read that Paul and Timothy were traveling through Galatia, and they wanted to go to Asia to preach the word. But the Spirit said, no, you're not going to Asia. You're going over here instead. He directed them. What they thought they were going to do, the Spirit said, No, I have other plans. After that, they said, oh, we want to go preach in Bithynia. But again, the Spirit said, no. No, I have a plan for you. I have ordained places for you to be, to preach, to bring the good news. And they were sent instead to Macedonia. So often we want the Holy Spirit to follow our program, our mission, to accomplish the things that we want, to do the miracles maybe that we want to see. But as we read through the scriptures, we see that when he ministers, he ministers on his own terms. It's on his own terms that he comes to us and works in us, works among us. And that is a good thing. That is something that should actually give us comfort this morning. Even as you might have something else that you want to see and be frustrated that God doesn't seem to want to follow your program, follow your plan. It should be comforting, honestly, to us that he has a better plan. And we're going to see more about that plan this morning. So this is what's at stake when we read and understand what Scripture tells us about Pentecost. We need to have that desire to be a Spirit-filled church, to minister, to grow, to love by the power of the Spirit. We need to be praying for that and expecting that. Our hope must be in that, and yet we need to know who the Spirit is, what His agenda is, what has been promised to us in Scripture concerning him. Because if we get Pentecost wrong, we're going to end up praying for God to work in ways that are contrary to his nature. We are going to pray for things that are contrary to the good news. Often when we think about the working of the Spirit, we can think of the cool, right? We can think, wouldn't it be cool if God would do this? Wouldn't it be cool just to see I, don't know, I have a friend who, whose just leg doesn't work right. He was born, um, and his leg just wouldn't operate correctly. Is um, kind of shorter than it's supposed to be. And wouldn't it just be cool to, to see this miraculous healing? And sometimes that is what God chooses to do. Sometimes 
in God's plan, he does bring that miraculous healing. And yet, if that isn't defined by the gospel, if that isn't defined by the greater good news, there is a greater good news than our physical healing, and that good news has to do with our spiritual healing, the great kingdom of God that has come and is coming. It's not wrong to desire to see the Spirit at work. In fact, it's very right to hope for it. But if our desire is to see the Spirit work in a way that is separated in some way from our desire to see the gospel advanced, we are going down the wrong track. We've misunderstood the reason why Jesus so graciously sent his Spirit to us. I want you to read with me verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, it may seem that Luke is just setting the scene. It would be helpful probably if they knew where these people were, and so we'll tell him. They were all together in one place. We're coming out of chapter 1, obviously, and so we know they're in one place in Jerusalem. And yet, there's a little bit more importance to this than that. In the context of Luke's story, a story that begins not even in Acts 1, but in the first chapter of the gospel that bears his name, this setting tells us something about Jesus and something about his followers. In Luke 24, Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but, this is important, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has decided not only the time when he would send the Spirit, not only the way, but in fact the place. I want you to stay in the city. I have a purpose for you here. I have a time that I have ordained for you here. And we see that the disciples are faithful. That the group who so recently fled in every possible direction when Jesus was arrested were patient to wait, to be obedient to the command of their Lord, to stay in Jerusalem in that upper room. If we look back as well at the end of the first chapter of Acts, which we have skipped over here, we see the disciples were prepared for the coming of the Spirit in another way. You recall that after Judas betrayed Jesus and was paid his 30 silver pieces to have done so, he went and he killed himself in the field that became known as the field of blood. And so here sit the 11 apostles in Jerusalem preparing for the day when Jesus would send the Spirit upon them. And they realize that they are no longer as they had been the 12 apostles. They are the 11 apostles. On the one hand, I suppose 11 does just as well as 12. God can use 11 people. God can use our church of 120, however many we have here today, just as well as a church of 5,000. But there was something important about that number of the 12 apostles, not the 11 apostles, but the 12 apostles. In the nation of Israel, you were not merely a member of the nation. You were identified as an Israelite from the tribe of whomever. An Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite of the tribe of Judah. The nation of Israel was founded upon these 12 men, the sons of Jacob and of Joseph. And so at the founding of the New Testament church, which was in a real sense both a new thing, right? We can say that Pentecost is the foundation of the New Testament church, and yet it is not separated 
from what God had been doing throughout his history. We can see that the church itself is present not only in Israel, but in Genesis 1 and 2 when God's, chose, when God's created man and woman worshipped him and served him in the garden. And so there's this continuity and new beginning. And so at the founding of the New Testament church, it was fitting for there to be not 11 apostles, but 12 apostles to serve as the foundation of the New Testament church. And so the disciples put forward two men who had been committed followers of Christ, and lots were cast to discern which of them should be made the 12th apostle, with the lot falling to a man named Matthias. Now, there's a lot to this story if there are aspects of it that are confusing to you about why they would choose to cast lots. Um, you can speak to Dr. Fowler afterwards. <laughs> there is a reason for it, uh, but we don't have time to really get into that today. But what we see is that God himself ordains through this method the 12th apostle to join the eleven and to be that foundation upon which the church is built with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Now, this may not seem particularly relevant to us today. We aren't going to cast lots after service for a new apostle. But it is important that we recognize how carefully, how precisely, the Lord prepared his people for the coming of the Spirit. This wasn't just a haphazard occurrence. This wasn't something that he could have done just any way and anywhere. He had been preparing so carefully and so specifically, not only in those years when Jesus was alive and when he came back and was resurrected, but even into the history of Israel. We read earlier today, uh, Troy read for us from Joel, that prophecy of the Spirit coming. We can look as well uh, at the prophecy in Ezekiel 36, which says, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the lands that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So this promise is part of their hope, part of their expectation when they're in exile, either in exile outside of Israel or in exile in Israel without control over their own land. This is their hope, this climactic thing that God is pushing towards, the sending of the spirits to inaugurate the day of the Lord. And there's a final sense that we see in this passage in which the Lord prepares his people for the coming of the spirit. Not only were the disciples being prepare, prepared but even those who didn't know Christ, even those who had not heard his name, even those who crucified him were being prepared for the coming of the Spirit. Luke lists this impressive group of locations from which people had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and re residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now, many of us probably aren't 100% familiar with the geography of that region, and so this may not hit us so much. 
It's a different thing for me to say, we had this great crowd at Metrocrest, people from McKinney and Irving and Carrollton and Plano, but it's something different if I told you we had a crowd at Metrocrest from, from Alaska, from Hawaii, from England, from Japan, from, from Australia, we, from everywhere that you can think of. And this is what Luke is doing here. He is basically drawing a circle all around the Roman Empire surrounding Israel and saying, People were here from everywhere. People were here from the whole empire. We're told even that inhabitants of Rome had come to Jerusalem, the center of power. And God had gathered the nations in. And although they didn't know it, he had gathered them in for the purpose of filling them and of sending them out. They thought that they were there to bring an offering to God, and yet they would come to realize shortly that, in fact, he had drawn them to Jerusalem to prepare them to give, him, to give them a gift of his own. And so, having so fully prepared the world for the Spirit's coming, the Lord finally sends him. And we're told that this isn't just a blessing for the church. It is actually better for us to have the Spirit than to have Jesus himself walking among us. Many days I find that very hard to conceive of, how amazing it would be to see Jesus in the flesh, to see him and be able to talk with him and ask him questions. And yet he tells us specifically in John 14 that it is better that I leave you, that I might send the Spirit to you, I might send the gift of the Father to you that we can all have the Spirit. And if you are in Christ, indeed, I will tell you, you do have the Spirit. And maybe this ought to convict us. It should make us excited that, that we have something even better than seeing Jesus face to face. We have God in an even more personal and even more indwelling sense than seeing Jesus face to face, but this probably ought to convict us as well of our taking the presence of the Spirit in our life lightly, of not praying earnestly that our lives would be more fully marked by his power. As I just said, we all have the Spirit, and yet we can pray that we would be more fully filled with the Spirit, more fully marked by his presence and his power in our lives. We call these things the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We want to be full of the power that only he can bring, of the things that only he can do, not only in what we often see as a miraculous sense, but in those things that are miraculous without our even recognizing it, our sanctification, our changing day by day, our salvation itself. And so Christ sends the Spirit to his people accompanied by signs to make it completely clear what is happening. We see that the physical events that take place at Pentecost are not random, are not simply signs of power, but are intended to show us specifically that it is God himself who has come to his people. He comes with two main signs. He comes with a mighty wind. And in fact, this is the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, which can either mean wind, spirit, breath, and the Spirit comes not with a bit of a breeze, 
but with a mighty wind, the Spirit, it's saying, in his power, in a mighty way, in a full way. And he comes with fire, with tongues of fire. If you think back to the Old Testament revelations of God's presence with his people, one of the common images that we see is of fire. You think of Jesus or of Moses meeting God in the burning bush. We think of the flaming fire pot that passed between the pieces and the covenant made with Abram. We think of the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness. And so it is saying, this is the spirit among you in his power, and this is God, very God himself. This is the God who has come to this mere 120 people in the upper room personally and powerfully. Less people probably than we have today. I'm a bad judge at, at judging numbers, but I would say in that upper room, in that birth of the church when the Spirit came and he filled his people, less people than there were here today constituted the believers in Jesus Christ. And that God said, this is the group who I will make not only a nation, but a kingdom of all nations, a kingdom of God himself. Now, I keep coming back to this point, but we should be amazed at this reality of the Spirit in our lives. Paul puts it this way in the letter to the Romans. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a gift that is. What a blessing that is to have received God himself into our hearts in the person of the Spirit. Now, here's the point where we have to remember those two controlling impulses that I mentioned in the beginning. We ought to be excited about the Spirit's work in our lives, and yet we need to be extremely careful to recognize the purpose for which the Spirit was sent and for which he is currently at work among us so that we don't attempt to use the Spirit for our own purposes, for our own idolatry, for our own worship, that is, of ourselves. So why did the Spirit come? What did he come to do? When I was thinking about this question, I, well, my wife and I have been watching a good bit of a show that maybe some of you have watched called The Great British Bake Off. Some of you. And this, this kind of image has stuck with me. I've often thought when watching the show of how cool it would be to meet one of these people, right? You watch a show and you kind of think, you know, there are celebrities. It would be really cool to just meet that person and be able to shake their hand. And yet, there's a difference between that, between meeting this person and having them come and bake for you. And when I think about the two, there's one of those that I would much rather have. Right? You watch and you see these amazing things that they're creating. You think, oh man, I want to eat that. And, and there's a difference between actually experiencing the fruits and just meeting the person. And what, the way that this applies to the Spirit is that his work is both miraculous, personal, and it is effective. We don't look at him just as a, it's cool to meet you, it's cool to have you. When we think of the Spirit, we think of what the Spirit is doing, of what he is accomplishing. As I said earlier, the hope that we have in the Spirit is no different, is not separated from the hope that we have in the gospel. They are tied together. When we think of the Spirit's work, it is not a, a random, a mindless expression of power, 
but a purposed expression of power. So why did the Spirit come? He came to advance the kingdom of God, to call and care for God's people, and to equip them for the work of ministry. He came to advance the kingdom of God, to call and care for God's people, and to equip them for the work of ministry. The Holy Spirit and the gospel are not separable in this life. If you have received the gospel, you have received it only by the power of the Spirit. And if you have experienced the working of the Spirit, you experience his working for the purposes of and entirely in line with the gospel of Christ. And this is for our good. We need the Spirit to align our purposes with the purposes of God. I and we wake up every day with purposes for my life that are at odds with the purposes of God. And I thank God that by his Spirit, he is putting those things to death that do not glorify him and making me alive to things that do glorify him. And we see this principle here at Pentecost. The Spirit comes to the disciples, and the miraculous working of his power is not arbitrary, not merely exciting, but is aimed specifically at the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, there are many debates within the church about the Spirit, about Pentecost. There are things that I just will not be able to answer this morning, lest we be here until this afternoon. But there are things within those debates that are important for us to know. They aren't merely minor debates. They do, in some way, strike at the essentials of what we expect in the gospel. One of those things is that there are some who will claim that this passage shows that all believers, when they receive the Holy Spirit, will speak in tongues. Right? That's, that's a view that is out there. And in some ways, it, it may be harmless. We know that many religions experience speaking in tongues. It's kind of an ex ecstatic experience that you can almost bring upon yourself by wanting to and just kind of relaxing your mind. And yet, if we focus on the tongues as the point of this passage, we're missing the point. If you tell me that being filled with the Spirit, I will be able to speak in tongues, even though I might not be saved in Christ, I will not be interested in those tongues, and I ought not to be. And on the other hand, if you tell me that being filled with the Spirit, I will surely be saved by Christ, yet without the tongues, I'm not going to miss the tongues, if I'm honest, and if I am aligned with Christ. The point is not the tongues, but what the Spirit is accomplishing by them. And what, is he, what he is accomplishing here is nothing less than the coming of God's kingdom, of a reversal of what we see in the Tower of Babel. You remember that story? Genesis 11, when the people at Babel are building this great tower to reach to the heavens. The idea being that their name would never pass from the earth. They're trying to earn for themselves a sense of immortality, a sense of, of lasting, a sense in which they can overcome death. They can overcome the curse that has been put on them because of sin. And God says, no, I will not allow these things. I will, in fact, confuse your languages. I will not allow you even to communicate so that your purposes might not come to pass. And yet here he is saying that people who have grown up, who have spent their entire lives speaking all different languages, being unable to communicate, 
by the power of the Spirit. We'll be brought back together. We'll be unified where there was division. We'll be brought into the worship of God. People gathered from the whole kingdom, people gathered from the whole Roman Empire, that they might hear the words spoken by the disciples. And at the heart of those words lies this pronouncement by the Apostle Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Not just the Gentiles, not just the Jews, every one of you, everyone who hears, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Not everyone who manages to earn his way into God's presence, not everyone who manages to uphold the law, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. For this the Lord took away the curse of Babel. For this the Lord enabled these people to hear. Not that they might simply hear in their own tongues, but that they might hear this particular message of grace and forgiveness, this message of the gospel. Now it's humbling that in the presence of God himself speaking by his spirit, the people assembled had two reactions. Some of them were in awe. Some of them were amazed and came to believe. And we are told that the number of them was about 3,000 souls. This is what happens when the Spirit is mightily at work. But some, we are told, scoffed. Some people heard these men from Galilee preaching in languages that could be understood by every person in Jerusalem. Some people saw this amazing miracle. Some people saw this great work of God's power and they scoffed. And they said, they are filled with new wine. In, a sen- in essence, they're drunk. And so we have to ask ourselves, how will we react to the coming of the Spirit, not just there on the day of Pentecost, but here today as well? Because we must understand that it is by gr- God's grace alone, that grace that was preached there, that we do not scoff. It's by God's grace that we do not count ridiculous the things that God has said are true. By God's grace that we can accept and understand and embrace the great truths that he has revealed to us in his word. And yet we know that in our sinful natures, and even often in our Christian lives, there are times when we can be tempted to scoff. Does God really mean what he said in his word? Can we really believe this word? Can we really trust in him? Does he really have the power to accomplish what he means to accomplish? And we are called, as those people did at the day of Pentecost, those 3,000 souls, to have faith and to believe, to humble ourselves, to receive this gift of the Spirit that is being poured out. I want... And I hope that we all want this church to be marked by the presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we haven't been praying for that, may we be convicted of that fact and say we could be a transformed church. The Spirit has worked for centuries, for millennia, and transformed his people. This is what he has sent to do 
to equip, to transform, to allow us to embrace the message of the gospel? Do we pray to see that? Do we strive to see his work among us? I want to see lives transformed by the Spirit's ministry, people converted, the truth spoken and preached in power and in love. I want to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those fruits of the Spirit. I want to see revival in this congregation. Maybe you've only heard that word among Baptists. Maybe we should be convicted that they have owned that good word. There are some words that we use that I think we could use a better word for that. And yet there, is, there are some words that other denominations seem to use a lot more than we do that we could say, no, I want revival. I want the Holy Spirit to be at work among us. As he has been promised to us, as we have been baptized in him, as he has been given to us, I want to see revival. We need to ask ourselves, what do we expect to see the Spirit do? Not that we can tell him what to do, but that throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, we see, and Paul tells his readers, strive for the greater gifts. Strive to see the Spirit's work among you. Sometimes I think we underestimate what the Spirit can do. I remember at one point being told, the Spirit has really gifted you with music. I thought, maybe that's true, but I practiced for a long time, and then I got okay. <laughs> Is that all that we expect the Spirit to do? Because I'll tell you, you can have a man who is not filled with the Spirit preach a well-written message, and yet without the power of the Spirit, that message will not change hearts, will not transform souls. Do we expect the Spirit to work in mighty ways, in ways that we cannot control or even understand, or do we merely expect him to do what we are able to do in our own work? It could be that we have drastically underestimated his power. And yet, as I look at my own heart, I think as we all, being in Christ, look at our own hearts, our own pasts, we can see that he has already worked among us. He has already worked in us the power of resurrection. That power has already begun in your life if you are in Christ, that he has taken a dead heart, a heart that is in every way devoted to sin, even when we don't realize it, in every way devoted to our own worship, our own health, our own prosperity, our own well-being, and is not interested in him. He has resurrected that dead heart and made it interested and able to understand and embrace the grace that Christ has given. He has reached out to you and changed you and transformed you, has given you that new birth. Can we believe that that spirit who has worked this power of resurrection already among us is powerful enough to work a power of transformation among us individually and as a congregation? Can we pray for that together? This is what our church and every church is called to. Not a power to minister by our own abilities, but to minister in every way by the power of the Spirit in ways that we must acknowledge ourselves unable. Unable to 
preach the good news adequately, unable to sing adequately, unable even to worship God in the way that we ought. And yet the Spirit has been sent to us with that promise of his power to accomplish his purposes. Can we rest on that today and pray for that today?